You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that's really concerned with the story of Stuart Little. His mom gave birth to a, a mouse, and we're just supposed to treat that as normal, and it's really weird. I'm Megan. I'm Eggplants in Fire. Oh gosh, this is already going to be so good. I'm RJ. And today we've made a, an objectively terrible decision that it will hopefully be funny, Otherwise, this will have just been a very bad idea in general. And we'll get we'll get to that. Uh, I don't know what we're going to be like towards the end of this episode. So I kind of want to get some of the usual announcements out of the way just in the beginning. We're part of Brain Trust Brothers Network, and that's undergoing rebranding. Uh, and we're now the Brain Trust Network, which just sounds much sexier and makes more sense because there are no brothers involved. But I guess we're all pretty smart and stuff. Pledge, pledge to us on Patreon, please, and you'll get really cool stickers, and you'll get to vote on future episodes, and you'll get posters and t-shirts and stuff. Oh yeah, I've been bad, I've been a bad person and haven't said other cool podcasts that I've been a guest on. I was a guest on the Frankenpod, which was awesome, and we talked about Jane Eyre, and also mostly Goosebumps and how fucking weird the Bronte sisters are. I was also on In Poor Taste, which is like a, a sketch comedy conversational podcast, and I had a very good time. We talked about the time a man barked at me like a dog. So you can check that out at In Poor Taste. I was on Quiplash in one, and I haven't been invited back since. RJ was too strong at Quiplash. He was too good at it. Follow me on Twitter. RJ has Twitter now, which is also a bad idea in and of itself, but you can follow him on Twitter at RJ underscore Ono Lit Class. Ono Lit Class Pod or Ono I don't fucking know. He doesn't fucking know. Stop pulling up. Okay. RJ underscore Ono Lit Class. And you can follow him. I don't know why I put the underscore in there. I don't know why you did either, but you can follow him and watch him uh, like and retweet all of his own tweets. The best Twitter going is mine. All right, so I'm let's RJ. actually let's actually start the episode. Uh, I'm RJ. Yeah, you are. You are. I'm Gosh RJ. Gosh darn it! So this episode, we are talking about the man, the myth, the raging alcoholic legend, Ernest Papa Hemingway. That's not his middle name. That is absolutely his middle name. No. In tribute to Ernest Hemingway, having daiquiris. We're having daiquiris. We're having. We're, we started with with daiquiris, which is the third. The third most, I think you said? Yeah, he mentions a lot of alcohol in his novels. Shocker. We started there, and now we're, we're up to his favesies, which is whiskey. Whiskey and soda is his favorite. Yeah, but like soda in that time meant like tonic water, which is gross and terrible. So we're just doing whiskey. with We got some lime and some, some simple syrup, which old Ernest would have derided. It's it's well documented that he absolutely hated sugary drinks and thought they were for pussies. So he would uh, be looking down his nose at us for using simple syrup, but good lord, we are only human. He was also into martinis and absinthe. 
Yeah, if we did absinthe, we'd be dead. I enjoy absinthe. You have one absinthe and vodka and you're done for the entire night. You lie on the couch and you giggle for an hour. That's all the alcohol. <laughs> yes, it is. That's why I said we'd be dead. So this is the this is the very first Ono Liklash drunk cast. Because we are following the oft-quoted phase, right drunk, edit sober. Although really in this case, it's, it's podcast drunk and edit sober. And it's actually been attributed to... A, a wide range of authors, basically anyone who's ever seemed like they might have a drinking problem, which is kind of a lot of them, including uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Mark Twain, James Joyce, but the most commonly by a How mile. about Eddie Poe? No, the, the quote is not actually attributed to Eddie Poe, despite his actual very real drinking problem. It's attributed most commonly to Ernest Hemingway. Now, there's not much in the way of proof, unfortunately, that he ever did actually say this, and... The odds are pretty high that this is just one of those mimetic misattribution things and it came from the fucking universe, but either way, Ernest Hemingway probably didn't actually say it. That being said, the man was a raging alcoholic, so we're still gonna do this gimmick. And we're talking about the old man and the sea. The letter or the place? The, the place. Okay. The, the old man and illiteracy. <laughs> C is for cookie. Cookie is for me. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm Dikembe Mutombo. Yeah, really, that's much less Cookie Monster and much more Dikembe Mutombo. <laughs> no, the old man in the sea. We're venturing back into the ocean. Waterworld? Sure. Except without Kevin Costner or post apocalypticness. I've never seen Waterworld. Who's the bad guy in that movie? I've never seen Waterworld. I don't fucking know. It's that other guy. That other guy. That's fantastic. This is a horrible idea. Should have watched Waterworld. Why the fuck should I have watched Waterworld? Jack Black's in it. Oh, Dennis Hopper. That's it. Shit. I do love me a Dennis Hopper. He was a bad guy in the Super Mario Brothers movie, which, you know what? Honestly, hot take, underrated. All right, come on, keep sick with the episode. That. Don't sleep on that Super Mario Brothers movie. All right, all right, all right, all right. Well, okay, so here's the thing. Ernest Hemingway, man's man, fighting in wars, drinking booze, writing very clipped short sentences about the truth, having four wives, living in Cuba, looking at F. Scott Fitzgerald's wean to tell him that it's not weird. If you want reference for that, it's in our second episode on The Great Gatsby. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald was like, Zelda told me my penis is weird, and he whipped it out, and Ernest went like, nah, man, it's cool, it's it's fine. He was weirdly obsessed with F. Scott Fitzgerald's mouth. He wrote about it a lot, about how it was a troubling mouth, which, take from that what you will, hashtag just manly things. Why'd I do anything for this episode? Oh, really? Yeah, I just, I just killed it for you there. RJ? What's up? Tell me a thing about a Hemingway. Ernest Miller Hemingway. Born July 21st, 1899, died July 2nd, 1961. Strangely, from day one, everyone, and I mean everyone, seemingly called the man, the myth, the legend, Papa. Papa? He was born in the tropical paradise known as Oak Park, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, which is an amazing city. Not. RJ had, wow, you blew out the mic there, thank you. RJ's had a weird vendetta against Chicago as long as I've known him, and I'm not 100% sure why. What's the problem with Chicago? I don't understand. It's got the big silver bean. Ferris Bueller was there. I don't like Ferris Bueller. You don't, you're just a bad person. 
No. Yes. No. Yeah. Who doesn't? Who the fuck doesn't like Ferris Bueller? Ben Stein. No, I'm I'm pretty sure he likes it because it gave him money, and now he's gone crazy. And isn't he like a libertarian, like hiding in a a bunker somewhere? Um, and I don't think he's a libertarian. He what was, is it that he is? He was part of the Reagan White House, so I'll venture to say, Republican. No shit. I knew he was a politics man at some point. I don't fucking <laughs> yeah, know. for the libertarian president known as <laughs> Ron Paul. <laughs> no, that man's a Republican also, by the way. Uh, it's just his son is a libertarian. Does no, Rand Paul is a Republican. But aren't also. they like libertarian Republicans because they want They're to like, well, destroy they, the government? No, they don't run on the libertarian ticket. Libertarian. That, that would be uh, Bob Barr. Bob Ross. No, Babar. Babar. Yeah. (gasps) Babar. Yes, that's the joke. His name's Bob Barr or Babar. I loved Babar's child. (laughs) Take a drink so I don't feel as bad. Anyway, Papa's Papa was Clarence Edmonds Hemingway, a physician, and Papa's Mama was Grace Hall Hemingway, who was a musician. This is one of the few authors we have done who had parents that were both successful and well-educated. And didn't die of tuberculosis? Oh, well, we'll get to that. Oh, shit. Initially, Papa's family was living in Ernest's grandfather's house. Or, if you will, Papa Papa's Papa's house. <laughs> Papa, don't preach. I'm Ernest Hemingway. Granddad's name, no surprise, was Ernest as well. What? No. Eventually, later in life, Ernest, Papa, would say that he disliked the Ernest name. Not because of any associations with his grandfather, but because the name is, quote, associated with the naive, even foolish hero of Oscar Wilde's play, The Importance of Being Earnest. Harsh. Also listen to episode 11 of Ono the Class for our take on The Importance of Being Earnest. This brings us to this week's episode of... Wait, what? Ernestine Around with RJ. What the fuck? Sure, there's Ernest Hemingway. And yup. <sighs> Oscar Wilde, in Ono with Class alum, did write about the fictitious Ernest Worthing, and maybe you have even heard about the American actor known as Ernest Borgnine, who told Fox News that the secret to living past the age of 90 is masturbating a lot. You got, they aren't going to know who fucking Ernest Borgnine is. It's Mermaid Man. It's Mermaid Man from Spongebob. Though they can Google the clip of where he's on Fox News and they ask him how to... This is, is true. He, said, he says he jacks off like every day all the time. But it's also Mermaid Man from Spongebob. He didn't understand how microphone He jacks were. off a lot. Except I think he's dead now. Despite all these Ernest, probably the best, the most notable Ernest, other than Hemingway, is Ernest P. Worrell. Really? That's what you're tying this to? The the Jim Varney character? What really sticks out to me is how much Ernest Hemingway and Ernest P. Worrell have in common. Ernest Hemingway also built a gloom doom beam and talked to a man named Vern who wasn't there. As we'll discuss, Papa saw the world. Well, Ernest P. Worrell not only went to camp, he also went to school, he went to jail, joined the army, went to Africa, he still had the time to save Christmas, get stared... Get Get scared stupid. Get scared stupid. And he even taught us all how to slam dunk in his instructional video, Slam Dunk Ernest. Sadly, (laughs) Ernest Hemingway did not live long enough to ever get to know Ernest P. Worrell or to see any of his autobiographical films. It's a shame because I think Ernest Hemingway would have died proud of having the name Ernest. No, I don't think he would have. But maybe, maybe him and Jim Varney are palling around in heaven. If only he knew about Mr. P. Worrell and his work. If things 
could have been different. You know what I mean, Vern? Or You didn't even do it right. Shit. Megan? You were building all the way to that fucking joke. You didn't even do it right. You go, you know what I mean? Know what I mean? Vern? Know nope. what I mean? Vern? There you go. God, like if you're going to do this fucking bullshit joke, commit. Er, Megan? <laughs> this week's episode of Ernesting Around is brought to you by Ernest. Looking for respect everywhere across this spaceship Earth brought to you by Siemens. We all call home. So, back to Oak Park. The Hemiways. Oh, jeez, that's right. We were talking about them. Papa included saved up their shekels bit by bit while living with Grandpa Hemiway until they were able to buy a house of their own. A seven-bedroom house complete with a music studio for Grace and a medical office for Clarence. Please, God, don't tell me how many fireplaces were in the Three. house. Three. <laughs> Son of a bitch! You see, you save up and then you can have nice things. Like a mansion complete with music studio and doctor's office. There you go. A pretty sweet commute, all things considered. This is true. As a boy, Papa was a daddy's boy. And it was easy to see why. Daddy Hemingway took little Ernest out hunting, fishing, and camping along the woods and lakes of northern Michigan on a pretty regular regular basis. This likely laid the foundation for Hemingway's love of the outdoors later in life. Meanwhile, Mama Hemingway was always trying to push Ernest to learn to play the cello. That's really specific. (laughs) Apparently, this was a source of conflict throughout his entire childhood as she forced him to take music lessons. I'm not going to play the cello, Mom! This is why, in part, Papa professed later in life that he hated his mother. Throughout his childhood, Papa attended public schools. He excelled in English throughout his primary and secondary education. Big shock. Mm. He also took part in a number of extracurricular activities, including boxing, track and field, water polo, and football. Oh yeah, he was also part of the orchestra with his sister, uh, Marceline. In high school, he and his sister took a journalism class. Wait, wait, did he play the cello? Don't know. (sighs) He and his sister took a journalism class that was like a mock newsroom where students submitted stories for the school newspaper. The trapeze. That's usually how a school newspaper works. Yeah, but it was a class they took. They weren't. Have you never took a journalism class in school? Nope. Papa's first published piece came in 1916 when he was 17. Yeah, Papa's first published piece. And focused on the Chicago Sympathy or Sympathy. <laughs> focused on the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's latest performance. By his senior year, Papa was editing the trapeze as well as the tabula, which is what they call the school yearbook. So proper. Papa imitated sports writers in his own writing, following all the conventions of sports writing, and even taking the nom de plume, Ring Lardner Jr., which which was a nod to Chicago Tribune sports writer known as Ring Lardner. Oh, so not not particularly subtle. From high school, given his journalistic ways, it was natural for Papa to continue down that path, landing a job at the Kansas City Star. Mark Twain... (laughs) Well, I wrote the sentence... (laughs) Mark Twain's a guy. Mark Twain, Sinclair Lewis, and a favorite of mine, Theodore Dreiser, were all journalists before eventually becoming novelists. Biographers argue that it was his time at the Star that led Papa to begin to find his writing voice as he relied heavily on the paper's style guide, which read in part, quote, Use short sentences. Use short first paragraphs. Use vigorous English. Be positive, not negative. So that was it, huh? He just re- took those newspaper guidelines and ran with it and said, this is going to be my fucking ethos for life. Yep. Kansas City Star. 
There you go. Give, give the Kansas City Star a fucking Pulitzer. After less than a year at the Star, a new challenge caught Papa's eye. World War One. That'll do it. In 1918, at the age of 18, Papa signed on to become an ambulance driver in Italy with the Red Cross. It took nearly two months to get to the Italian front. Holy shit. On his first day, he was dispatched to a munitions factory that had exploded. There were no survivors. Instead, him and his fellow rescuers spent the day attempting to retrieve the remains of the female workers. Holy shit. Later on, in one of his nonfiction books, he wrote of the incident, quote, I remember that after we searched quite thoroughly for the complete dead, we collected fragments. Ugh. On July 8, 1918, Papa was seriously wounded by mortar fire, being near the front line to deliver chocolate and cigarettes to the men along the front lines. Papa sustained multiple shrapnel wounds to his legs. Despite being injured, he persevered that night and continued to assist moving injured Italian soldiers to safety. He was later awarded the Italian Silver, Silver Medal of Bravery for his actions. When he finally sought medical attention for his own injuries, he was immediately sent in for an operation and remained in the hospital for five days before being sent to a Red Cross rehab facility in Milan. There's a movie about this, and I don't yes, remember what Yes, we're going to talk called. about that. Oh, okay. He was in rehab for six months. Later in life, Papa said about going to war as an 18-year-old, quote, When you go to war as a boy, you have a great illusion of immortality. Other people get killed, not you. Then, when you are badly wounded the first time, you lose that illusion, and you know it can happen to you. During the six months at the rehab facility, Papa met a nurse by the name of Agnes von Kurwowski, who was seven years his senior. He was smitten. He had such a huge baby crush on her. When Ernest was discharged from rehab in January 1919, the two had become engaged and had plans to marry in America sometime in the next few months. That didn't happen. However, in March, Papa got a letter for, from Agnes in which she wrote that she was now engaged to an Italian officer. The two would never meet again. Papa was heartbroken. And according to biographers, this explains why Papa had one bad relationship after another. He never really trusted women ever again. And then he just wrote really bad women in all of his stories who were all terrible. As for Agnes, she is supposedly the inspiration for the character Catherine Barkley in Papa's Farewell to Arms. This relationship is the focus of a 1996 film, In Love and War, Starring Sandra Bullock and Chris O'Donnell. Chris O'Donnell is Ernest Hemingway is so weird. We watched it in class. That's why I've seen that movie. I don't remember in conjunction with what, probably when we read Old Man in the Sea, which I guess we'll... Well, we really didn't talk at all about Old Man in the Sea before launching into Ernest Hemingway's biography, huh? Nope. Shit. Old Man in the Sea. I feel like that's one that most people had to read in school, in high school. I read it in high school. I read it in middle school. You read it in middle school. I was a seventh grader. You were just fucking accelerated. Maybe I read it in middle school. I think I read it my freshman year of high school. I'm not 100% sure. They Um, put me in the gifted classes, even though technically I wasn't gifted. How'd you end up there? Yeah, they gave me the test and I missed it by like a point. And so they're like, yeah, close enough. (laughs) Yeah, good enough. Get in there. That's fine. Yeah, I was already like a grade ahead. So I was just kind of doing my thing. Wow, that was a really fucking, like, humble brag shit there. I'm sorry. But well, yeah. I wasn't gifted. <laughs> and then I was an IB. I was an AP. Well, IB is a step above. Okay, but I was already one grade ahead. Way to from go. From what I should have been, so yeah. fuck you. Where's that get you in life? Not much. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Old Man in the Sea, people don't dislike it as much because Hemingway wrote in such short, very quick-cutting prose, it's much easier to get through than a lot of other writing. It's a short book. It's very to the point. Is it a novel? I believe it's technically classified as a novella. Yes. Much like Heart of Darkness, but unlike Heart of Darkness, like I said, there's quick, no horror. 
quick yeah there's no well <laughs> the horror the horror the horror the horror the horror anyway it's a lot easier to get through and i think most people are probably very appreciative of that fact however a lot of people get pissed off because the whole thing is about the dude catching the fish and it doesn't really like he does all this stuff with the fish and we'll we'll get to that but Everybody I know is always disappointed about the anticlimax, and actually, if you listen to us on another show that both of us were on called The Pod Stuff with Perry and Lindsay, Perry uh, expresses his disappointment with the ending of The Old Man and the Sea, so I guess we'll get to that. But it's another one where it's a great American classic, and I believe Ernest Hemingway was, in fact, awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature for it in 1954. So it's another one of those fucking untouchable classic literature canon. I don't know. So rehabbed and heartbroken, a 19-year-old Papa returned to his parents' mini mansion in Old Oak Park. Papa was a bit lost during this time. He was unemployed and being back home, it was kind of at odds with the fact he was just forced to grow up pretty quickly overseas. Hey, RJ. Would you say that he was part of a lost generation? As a biographer explained <laughs> be that way. of his time, quote, Hemingway cannot really tell his parents what he thought when he saw his bloody knee. He could not say how scared he was in another country with surgeons who cannot tell him in English if his leg was coming off or not. Eventually, through a family friend, Papa got a job in Toronto that led to a writing gig with the Toronto Star Weekly. He only lived in Toronto for about a year before he returned back to Michigan and then Chicago, although he continued to file stories for the Toronto Star. While in Chicago, Papa met Hadley Richardson. Papa fell for her very quickly, saying later, quote, I knew she was the girl I was going to marry. Yeah, he knew a few girls he was going to marry. Maybe it was the red hair. Maybe it was her supposed nurturing nature. Maybe it was the fact she was eight years older than Papa. Papa's got a thing for older women, which honestly is a refreshing change from the rest of the male authors we usually talk about. Who knows? But he wanted that ass. The two married on September 3rd, 1921, after touring Paris together. Shortly after their marriage, Papa was hired as a foreign correspondent for the Toronto Star, and the two went back to Paris for Papa to work. Among the benefits Paris had to offer, it was inexpensive to live in there at the time, but more importantly, Papa believed it was where the most interesting people in the world lived. While in Paris, he met Gertrude. Gertrude Stein, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Pablo Picasso. Okay, thank you. He met Gertrude, but my friends... He met Gertrude, but my friends call me Gertie Stein. James, I love the smell of farts, Joyce. And Ezra, I know how to pound. James Joyce did love the smell of farts. Ezra Pound can go fucking eat a dick because he's a fascist. He supported Hitler. Mm. I, it's an objective fact. It's not an opinion. <laughs> Gertie Stein became a mentor to Papa, who was a, quote, tall, handsome, muscular, broad-shouldered, brown-eyed, rosy-cheeked, square-jawed, soft-voiced young man. That's a really weird thing to describe in detail right there. Through Gertie, Papa got to know Pablo Picasso, Juan Moreau, and Juan Gris. Eventually, Papa and Gertie had a falling out, and their relationship turned into a literary spat that lasted basically the rest of their lives. They were both really bitchy people. So, Papa spent more time with Pound Town Ezra and Farty McJoyce. <laughs> In particular, James Joyce and Papa were known for going on what the two would call, quote, 
alcohol sprees. Yeah, that sounds about right. In his first 20 months in Paris, Papa filed 88 stories with the Toronto Star. And while he had been working on manuscripts, it was all for naught as Hadley managed to lose a suitcase full of Papa's manuscripts when she traveled to meet him in Paris. Did that put a strain on the marriage? Not at that point. Despite the lost work, Papa did begin to publish books of short stories and poems. As he continued to travel as a correspondent, Papa began to realize he missed Paris. Although he did have a fondness for Spain, in particular for bullfighting, and he felt not only was Toronto boring in comparison, he was also over the life of being a journalist. There's just not enough bull murder in Toronto. He wanted to write more creatively. Papa's initial publications were a hit. He was praised for reinvigorating the short story genre, or genre, with what was described as his, quote, crisp style and use of declarative sentences. <laughs> Papa met F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ono Laquas alumnus, months before The Great Gatsby was published. Papa loved the novel and decided he, too, should write a novel. He loved F. Scott Fitzgerald, too. Just saying. Over the next few years, Papa and Fam moved back and forth between Paris and Spain. It was during the time Papa became known as Papa Pamplona. While in Spain, Papa began to work on what would become The Sun Also Rises, finishing the novel in a mere eight weeks. Many consider the novel, which is about the post-war expatriate generation, the Wash generation, hey. to be Papa's greatest work. During this time, Papa began to have an affair with Pauline Pfeiffer, a woman four years his senior and a journalist. Hadley found out about the affair and asked for a divorce, which quickly followed. Yeah, girl, don't take those shit. Four months after the divorce was finalized, Papa married Pauline. Pauline was from a wealthy Catholic family based in Arkansas and was in Paris to cover stories for Vogue magazine. Papa was so into his relationship that he converted to Catholicism before the marriage. Wow. Even though he was never really particularly religious. Well, then I guess that's not a big deal. Like, if you're not religious, it's like, all right, yeah, I'll become Catholic. Why not? Like, sure. Within months of being married, Pauline was preggers, and let it be known she wanted to move back to America to have the kid. A family friend recommended Key West, because why not? Indeed. Before they could move, though, Paris had to leave one more mark on Papa. Literally. While in a bathroom, Papa pulled on a chain, thinking it was a toilet chain, when in fact it was a chain to a skylight that came down and left him with a permanent and prominent forehead scar. What? Papa never liked to tell others how he got that scar when asked. <laughs> I didn't know that. How'd you get that scar, Ernest? Is it from the war? Yes. It's definitely from the war and not from a toilet mistake. Once going back to America, Pauline had the couple's son, Patrick, on June 28, 1928. Things were going well for the family as Papa's writings were profitable. So much so that Papa wrote to his parents to explain they would never have to worry about their finances again, which he knew they had been struggling and scraping by for some time. Sadly, though, Papa got word shortly thereafter that his father had killed himself. Oh. Papa was told that the letter he wrote to his mom and dad about helping them financially was delivered just hours after his dad offed himself oh my god also maybe don't say offed himself that's kind of terrible papa commented to pauline quote i'll probably go the same way Ooh, woof who turns to your fucking wife and goes hey baby i'm probably gonna kill myself too so i don't know just be prepped for that well i don't think you said it quite that way probably a little more upset i'll think i'm just saying that's that's a really weird and terrible thing to tell your fucking wife Needing a bit of a break, Papa traveled back to Spain in 1929, 
which wound up being research for Death in the Afternoon. This work is a complete treatise on bullfighting, which Papa was very passionate about, as he believed bullfighting was, quote, of great tragic interest, being literally of life and death. Ernest Hemingway was super into man versus nature just as a thing. He had a, a real big hard-on for, like, nature, but also man's domination of nature. Yeah, no, that was just, like, a, an overarching theme in, like, all of his works is, like, nature is this good and amazing, powerful thing, but it's also great when we as men kill the shit out of it. During the 1930s, Hemingway wintered in Key West and summered in Wyoming. You can summer in my ass. Which he said was, quote, the most beautiful country he had seen in the American West. He hunted deer, elk, and grizzly bears. Because what else would you hunt? Of course. By the way, at one point, Papa, who turns out is very accident prone, had a car accident and injured his spine, which was fixed using a kangaroo tendon. What? Yep. Part man, part alcohol, part kangaroo. No. Wait, what? Ernest Hemingway. Wait, for real though? Yeah. I've never heard this ever. Yeah. And I've heard all kinds of weird shit. Broke his back, used kangaroo parts to fix him up. Holy shit. That's Outback for you. Wait, wait, was he in Australia when it happened? No, he's in Wyoming. What the fuck? Who the fuck is in Wyoming? You we could rebuild him using kangaroo bits. Where the fuck did they even get kangaroo bits from in Wyoming? Oh, the question is, where have all the kangaroos gone? And they killed them <laughs> to take their parts in Wyoming. Where have all the kangaroos gone? Yep. The bad Holy back thing, shit. though, that's why in part... When he was in the Key West house, which was outfitted with a writing studio, had a standing desk in it because he was unable to sit for too long without having immense back pain. That's a bummer. So I, I don't want to like steer too far with, but um, the Hemingway house in Key West is fucking dope. I got to go there. And it's so cool, and you get to see the thing where he did the standing and the writing and all of the places of the house where his wife at the time spent too much money on, like these really big, cool pools. And that's also where the six-toed cats are, that they, they have a mutation and they fucked like crazy, so there's six-toed cats just everywhere, and you can pet them, and they're super chill. They only take fucking cash, though. Don't try to get a ticket to the Hemingway house with a credit card, because you can't. Just FYI. Public service announcement. So if you're in Key West, definitely check out the Hemingway house. Bring cash, because they're in the fucking medieval times. Money talks, credit walks. Finance it with RJ. When not writing, Papa spent a good amount of time in Cuba and generally just continued to explore the world, which included exploring new women. Of course. You see, while in Havana, he met a woman nine years his junior this time. Oh. Martha Gellhorn, that he fell for, which led to another divorce and another, and another marriage. It was also during this time in Havana that Papa got a hard-on for another kind of pussy. Cats. As told by a biographer, quote, Hemingway, who had been disgusted when a Parisian friend allowed his cats to eat from the table, became enamored of cats in Cuba, keeping dozens of them on the property. So what, what made that switch, I wonder, between like, Ew, get your gross French cat off here. What are you, some kind of big gay sissy to like, Come here, my little kitty puppies. Oh, there you go. Well, that's simple. Those Parisian cats had, you know, those, like, fucking old French mustaches, where the Cuban cats had a proper shea yeah, mustache. Yeah, yeah. They have little Cuban cigars, too, while you're just being racist and terrible. They had the little berets. <laughs> Which, oddly, the French cats didn't. I'm gonna pause this real quick. We've moved on to scotch. You're, well, you're drinking scotch because you're a fancy motherfucker. I'm still drinking whiskey because 
Even though I don't like him, I'm being true to Hemingway's spirit. Not long after his time in Havana, World War II broke out. And after sitting on the sidelines for a few years, working on novels like For Whom the Bell Tolls, I wonder where he got that title from. It's a mystery. It's pretty catchy. Mm-hmm. And just generally enjoying Key West, he decided to pick up the old war correspondent habit and went to London to cover the war. How old was he at this point? In his 40s. While there, the two most papa things happened. One, he met another woman. Of course. Mary Welsh, who would become his final wife. But he also had another accident, another car accident, that put him in a bad way. Jesus. Not wanting current wife Martha to come across the pond to see him, as Mary was there taking care of him, he refused to help Martha get across the Atlantic. What? Dick. Poor Martha literally took an ammo boat across the pond oh my God. to visit her infirmed husband, only to find Mary, the new main squeeze, at his hospital bed. Ah, oh, he's such a dick. Awkward. He's such a dick. Another divorce was followed by another marriage. At least the women are smart enough to fuck off when they realize that someone's got a wandering penis. Eventually, Papa recovered and did cover the war for two years. Well, like you said, Megan, apparently Papa was all in this man versus nature thing. Man is around to slay. Give me a break. Deer, elk, grizzly bears. Puss. And puss. Puss. <laughs> Murder it. <laughs> Eventually, Papa recovered and did, cover the, and did cover the war for two years. He eventually received a bronze star for his bravery in covering the war, despite being caught in combat multiple times during his correspondence stint. It's mm, badass. He's still a fucking prick, but that's badass. After World War II, things really fell to shit for Hemingway, other than, you know, winning a Nobel Prize for literature, as Megan mentioned. Ugh. I mean, like... Who gives a shit? I mean, that was swell and all. But let's run through the list of things post-World War II. The final wife, Mary, had an, unsuc- had an unsuccessful pregnancy. I think that's the best way I could phrase that. She went on to break both of her ankles in separate skiing accidents. Maybe she should stop skiing! Papa had another car accident in which he broke his kneecap. Oh my god. And got another scar on his head. How many fucking car accidents has this man been in? Like, at, at least three or three four. Three or four. Jesus. Papa's literary friends began to die, like William Butler Yeats and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Maybe don't let the man drive a fucking car. Oh, yeah, and two of Papa's siblings committed suicide. He later learned that suicide seemed to be so prevalent in his family because of a genetic disorder they all carried that affected the brain, and lucky him, he was afflicted too. He also had, from what most presumed, an undiagnosed bipolar disorder. Which makes me want to, like, empathize with him, because I had a a misdiagnosed bipolar disorder for, like, a long time, that it was misdiagnosed as depression, and, like, so I want to to feel for him, but he is still a fucking prick. He's a racist and a misogynist and a homophobe and an anti-Semite. When trying to get away from it all by touring Africa for Christmas in 1954 with his wife, the plane they were on hit a utility pole. Mary broke two of her ribs in the crash. Papa sustained a brain injury and was leaking cerebral fluid. Holy shit! As if that wasn't bad enough, when they were put on another plane the next day... bad! Yeah, well, if that wasn't bad enough, when they were put on a plane the next day to bring them to a hospital, that plane blew up before takeoff. What? Were they on it? Yes. Oh my god! Like, they were put on the plane, and boom. Why did the plane blow up? Like a mechanical issue? That we don't know. We just know it blew up. 
Jesus fuck. How did they not die? This time, Papa suffered serious oh, don't, burns don't know. <laughs> and lost most of his hair. He was basically like bald like from head to toe. Oof. And a number of obituaries were printed, but alas, Papa continued to survive. Papa pulled through. A plane can't kill him. I believe he was in the hospital for months, so... Like, That's was bad. really fucking awful. This should really sum up uh, how Papa's late life went. Due to his degenerative and inherited brain condition, he went, well, mad towards the end. That's not a cool way to say that, that he went mad. He's not a fucking Edgar Allan Poe character. Oh, I mean, he went through electric shock therapy. He He was very depressed. He had a degenerative brain problem. He became very depressed and paranoid that people were watching him. Except, yes, actually they were. Yes. The FBI was tailing him. I don't know why. Do you know why? Yes. Okay, well, yeah, I guess you're going to tell us. But so he was just really miserable and upset and paranoid all the time. He went to the Mayo Clinic. The Mayo Clinic was like, maybe we'll just shock you a bunch and that'll help. And of course it fucking didn't. And when he went to the Mayo Clinic, he checked in under a friend's name because he was convinced people were following him. And so he was trying to hide the fact he was in the Mayo Clinic. And they were following him anyway. It was, was, um, fuck's his name? Jagger Hoover. Yes. Yeah. Who's, God, you want to talk about a prick? Jesus. All right, why, why was J. Edgar Hoover obsessed with following Hemingway around? Well, they followed everybody around. You know, they kept the file on MLK. They kept the file on but Elvis. Like, Hemingway? Who the fuck? Like, like, MLK was, like, cr- crusading and doing things in civil rights. Like, Hemingway was just doing his thing. He spent a lot of time in Cuba. Ah, uh, that's right. And this mid, was... mid fifty, yeah, mid-50s. And this was uh, post-World War II America. And during World War II, what really got Hemingway on the map was he would take a boat back and forth between Key West and Havana um, that he would sail himself. That while in Cuba, he got the Cuban government to help him outfit his boat with basically bombs. <laughs> so that they when must he must have really liked him. So that when he was sailing back and forth between Havana and Key West, if he came across like a Ju- uh, a German <laughs> U-boat, he would drop the bombs he on them. He could take that motherfucker out. Never had to use it. That's a badass thought, though. But that he was always like traveling somewhere and he was a bit, um, when you're against the mainstream, subversive. There you go. He was a bit subversive. So, Jager Hoover, who had a file on everybody, had G-Men following Ernest Hemingway as well. So, yes. Jager Hoover was such a fuckface. Hemingway tried to tell everybody that people were following him and people thought he was crazier than he was, but he was actually vindicated after his death. Poor Hemingway. I'm I'm only going to say this once. Poor Hemingway. That fucking sucks. It should be a little surprise, albeit sad, that Papa committed suicide. While he owned a number of guns and other weapons, he used the shotgun that he used to hunt. Uh, I do know this fact. Yeah, he, he used the shotgun that he used to hunt with um, and shot himself in the head on July 2nd, 1961 at the age of 61. They called that, that was like his, they called the shotgun like his closest friend. Yes. Uh, I believe he called that shotgun his closest friend. Oh, that's, oh, jeez. That, that was specifically that shotgun oh, that he used. Oh, crazy. The wife at the time tried to convinced herself that this was an accident even though he took the shotgun from the basement to the foyer in front of the house and did it like right in the front door like he did it like he did it like in a very i want the mailman to find me um but the wife still tried to convince herself no 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 this is all just a very bad accident well god 
God, if fucking, if your spouse fucking committed suicide, you would probably be in a bit of denial about it. Because, you know, there's probably that bit of guilt there, too, of like, well, if they were suicidal, I should have known or should have seen this. So, like, no, like, it was just an accident. It's just a very bad situation. So, I mean, like, I feel like you can't really blame her for that. So the man who was so powerful that life could not bring him down. It was like he survived 10 sequels of The Final Destination. It's true. It's maybe only right he can only die at his own hands. He left behind a sweet little place in the Keys, though it is overrun by six-toed cats, as Megan mentioned. That's the opposite of a problem. (laughs) And when he passed, he was celebrated, which is a lot better than most of the authors we cover around here. In the end, Papa loved drinking and was accident-prone. You wonder if maybe there was a correlation. Mm. But that is a mystery to solve at another time. For now... To the Old Man and the Sea, which was Hemingway's final full-length work published in his lifetime. Megan. Well, first let's raise a glass for Papa Hemingway. Consummate bastard, heavy drinker, famous writer. I don't get where you get that he was anti-Semitic. Um, I mean, I could pull receipts if you want. Yeah. <laughs> he talks a lot about people being ugly because they're Jewish. Like, this dude was ugly and a bad dude because he was a Jew, that kind of thing. So Hemingway wrote, as we as we said, a very specific style. It was actually referred to, he called his style the iceberg theory. The facts float above the water. The supporting structure and the symbolism operate out of sight. So basically like the theory of omission, that he's just going to tell you the facts and you're going to put the rest of it together yourself. You know, Hemingway's just kind of like, Whatever, like, you'll figure it out. It'll be fine. So this is kind of like in the short story, Hills Like White Elephants. The point of it is a conversation between a man and a woman, and they're definitely talking about an abortion, but they never actually say the word abortion. Don't look at me like that. Fuck you. Hemingway's female characters are referred to as Hemingway's bitch women because the dude had a lady writing problem, as did many a male author at the time. And after the time. And literally right now. Dude had a collection of short stories called Men Without Women. So, take from that what you will. Yeah, women write stories without men in it. <sighs> Joy Walk Club. Oh my god, Sisterhood yeah. of the Traveling Pants. There are dudes in the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. There are? Yes. Do they get in the pants? No, I don't. Uh, the, the pants are magic for the girls. Not even Clive Owen? The, what? No. Yes, Clive Owen wore the pants and he had a magical summer. <laughs> the old I man in the were. the old man in the sea, Nobel Prize winning for literature as it is Hemingway. So there's an old man, as you might expect. There's also a sea, as you might also expect, and there's a boy. The old man and the boy do have names, although Hemingway doesn't use them much. The sea doesn't have a name, but we can give it one, I suppose. What do you want to name the sea? Let's give the sea a name. The Atlantic Ocean. No, give it a real person's name. It deserves it. Danny Ocean. Danny Ocean. We're going to call the sea Danny Ocean. The uh, the old Bye. man the old man and the boy are Santiago and Manolin. Manolin? Manolin? Manolo. Mandolin. Barry Manolo. Respectively. Copa. Copa. Well, we're going to get to that. Copana. Um, the sea is Danny Ocean. Uh, they live in Cuba, somewhere near Havana. Possibly by the Copa. Copa Cabana. Well... 
It's the oh, hot. It's the hottest spot north of Havana. It's north of Havana. So if they're in Havana, they're no, not they're far. near Havana. Uh, well, if they're north of Havana, they might be by the Copacabana. They might. There's music and dancing. The something something entrancing. At the Copa. Copacabana. We don't know any other parts of that song. So, old man Santiago used to be a big bad fish-catching machine, but now he's old and gross and sad and avoided by everyone in their little village because he's bad luck because he hasn't caught a single fish in 84 days. That's like what? Like That's like three months. Way to do math. That is what? Yeah, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. If you're going out in your boat every fucking day for three months and not catching anything, then yeah, I think you might be bad luck. Or like trying to fish with like a fucking pool cue or something. Maybe he's gone senile and he's just rowing his boat in the sand and screaming at the ocean to give him fish. Like, I don't know a single thing about fishing, but I think if if I rowed my ass out to the ocean every single day for three months, I would catch something. Like, even if it was by accident. But yeah, so everyone in town makes fun of him, probably calling him, like, Fishy McNoCatch or No Fish McBad is fishing. <laughs> but anyway, the kid, M- Manolin, Man- Mandolin, Barry Manilow, is the only one who will willingly hang out with the unlucky Sad Tiago. Hey. Even though his parents are like, don't you hang out with that weird old unlucky man, which honestly is a fairly reasonable thing for a parent to say, but Barry Manilow's known the old man since he was a little kid, so, like, that's less weird, I guess. Like, he's basically a surrogate grandpa, so, like, that's okay. Uh, which is why Barry Manilow brings him food and such, so he doesn't starve. And then they read the newspaper and talk about Joe DiMaggio, who they worship because he was a good baseball player, and also his dad was a fisherman. I have no way of verifying this, but sure, why not? Like, I trust Hemingway, I guess. Dude's obsessed with, like, the truth. I don't know. The Iron Horse. What? That's Joe DiMaggio. The Iron Man? No. Is he a horse? He I, was I, also the Yankee Clipper. I thought he was a baseball player. Jolton Joe. Was he a horse or a baseball player? Died in Hollywood, Florida. No shit. That's probably why the hospital. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably why the children's hospital's here. And he also was married to Marilyn Monroe. Yes. Just like Ray Bradbury. Yes. Not Ray Bradbury, you dumb shit. Arthur Miller. That one. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> yeah, they're all the same. No, Ray Bradbury married one woman and loved her forever. Arthur Miller was d- did not. So uh, the old man talks about sailing on a ship in Africa once because Hemingway went to Africa just like he writes about Spain because he went to Spain. Or Cuba because he went to Cuba. Dude is the poster boy of Write What You Know, which is why so many of his stories are about being an asshole to women. But anyway... The old man went to Africa and saw lions. And he says this because he's going to dream about lions a whole bunch when he sleeps. And this is because lions are the strong, badass predators and the symbols of natural strength and also probably like virility and, and penisness and something, knowing Hemingway and whatnot. And so this is what the man used to be in his prime. And now he's old and can't fish and dreams about the good old days. So Santiago tells Barry Manilow that he's going to go way, way out to sea tomorrow and his ass isn't coming back. Until he's ended his drought and caught a goddamn fish. And he leaves early morning and sets out into the Danny Ocean. So he just chills out on the Danny Ocean for a bit, thinking about how some dumb youngsters think the ocean is a man, but Santiago knows that it's actually a sexy, tempestuous woman. W- woman. The ocean is one woman. Maybe. Danny. Ocean. <laughs> yep. Was that uh, George Clooney? i never seen these films. 
in the original version, it's Frank Sinatra, yeah. I think, and the, yeah, and the newer one, it's George Clooney. Those are pretty saucy women. In the well, in the most recent one coming out, Ocean's Eight, it's uh, Sandra Bullock. In that case, Danny Ocean is a saucy woman. Look at that, Sandra Bullock. We tied it all full circle. Poof. 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 This, right. this bus don't stop. Nope. Can't anyway, slow down. Can't slow down. Can't stop. Won't stop. So he baits his lines and he waits for some fish to happen. He watches seagulls try to catch flying fish. Hey, wasn't Dennis Hopper the bad man in Speed? Yes, he was. There you go. He watches. So was Kevin Costner out here in Waterworld with old Santiago? Maybe. He watches seagulls try to catch flying fish. He sees a jellyfish. He calls it a whore. You know, like normal boat stuff. Oh, shit, he catches some tuna. Yay, tuna. But he decides that isn't good enough and doesn't count because tuna's a weak-ass baby fish, apparently. Instead, he uses them as bait to catch a bigger fish. He talks to himself and wonders if he's starting to get, like, boat madness when there's a tug on the line. And this time it's a big old fucking marlin. Deep, and deep underwater. wait, we gotta stop here. We do? Yeah. Are we gonna talk about Marlin from Finding Nemo? Is it that Marlin? Is he going, yep. Have you seen my son Nemo? It was not just any Marlin, Megan. It was Marlin, the the from from no, Finding Nemo. No, no. It was Billy the Marlin. And oh not, god. And not the flaming homosexual emblazoned and rainbow colors Billy the Marlin. Oh my god, I should have known this was coming. It was the OG teal and black looking like a real Marlin. <laughs> Billy the Marlin. Billy the Marlin is the mascot for the Miami baseball team. The, the, the fucking Marlins. I guess they're the Miami Marlins now. Yep. Yeah. And on that note. When they became the Miami Marlins as opposed to the, they were the Florida Marlins before. Yep. They became the Miami Marlins. They got some like much more hotter looking uniforms. And Billy the Marlin got like a sexy makeover. And RJ has a huge problem with this. Well, he went from looking like a Marlin to looking like a rainbow. Looking like a big gay Marlin. <laughs> South Beach, yo. <laughs> International, Mr. 305, worldwide. Damn right, Mr. Worldwide the Marlin. And on that note, we're brought back to this week's TV show writing with RJ. Oh, fuck. Ah, yes, you thought I would have forgotten. Yeah, I'd hoped. But alas. Alas. I remembered. Shit. On our last. Yeah, this time you remember a thing. <laughs> on our last TV show writing with RJ... We discussed how medical shows are out of touch with the common man. Yeah, and we, we just also discussed how out of touch you are with medical shows. <laughs> Today, we'll discuss how TV writers have lost the public in a different space. The animal protagonist space. What? Long gone are the days of Lassie, Flipper, Mr. Ed. Lassie fuck... These all fucking sucked, I think? Alf. Wait, what, what animal was Alf? Alien life form. Didn't he eat cats? That's what alpha stands for, by the way. A cat eater? Alien life, life form. form. Wow, the 80s were fucking stupid. And Snorky. <laughs> Where have all the animals gone? Second time we're going to invoke this <laughs> Where have all the animals gone? Yeah, not just the kangaroos, but all of them. Animals used to be so cool. They were all over. Comet on Full House. The Duck on Friends and The Wire. Silver on The Lone Ranger. Today, yeah, those, all, those things all happened concurrently. Today, I look at the media landscape. Nothing. Mm, what about that Disney show? The Dog with a Blog. I thought you were going to say Airbud, but Airbud's coming on. Yeah. 
Well, that's why I didn't fucking say air bud. But here's the thing, Megan. Animals rule this planet. They outnumber us homo sapiens. Yeah, not for much longer, the way things are going. One might even say, this is truly a planet of animals. As opposed to of the apes. Yep. Fucking hate you. But we hide them. We shoo them into a corner to stay quiet. And obediently they abide. I say no more. We need more furry representation out there in the world. Don't say furry representation ever again. <laughs> more dogs, dolphins, horses, and all the rest. Oh boy. Get with it, TV show writers. Back to Megan. She's fucking crazy. But I have a name for the Marlon. Billy. Billy. Fine. Anyway, this fucker is big and strong and physically pulls the boat along by the fishing line, dragging Santiago further out until he can't stop showing me Billy the Marlin pictures. Uh, until he can't see land anymore. He fights with this thing for like four hours to no avail. He wishes that he could see what it looks like and remembers one time when he actually hooked two whole marlins, and they were male and female. And they were probably fish married, and he clubbed the female marlin to death, because that's how fishermen do. And the male marlin hung around the boat, all sad that his fish wife was fish murdered, and Santiago's just like, yeah, that was kind of sad, but I'm still gonna murder the fuck out of this fish, so that's a section of the book, I guess. Thanks, Hemingway. Every word matters. Anyway. The sun rises on the second day, and the old man is still locked in fish combat, his hand holding that line for however fucking long. The fish yanks on the line like a motherfucker, and it cuts up Santiago's hand, and he's just like, Oh, you dead fish, you dead as hell. But then, as the hours stretch, is that porn? No, stop showing me porn! That's the Philly fanatic and Billy the Marlin in porn, thank you. That's fantastic, with a PH, like the Philly fanatic. As the hours stretch, she gets all old man sentimental, like, Ah, fish, you and me were not so different. You are my brother, mighty Marlin, and I am also basically a fish. I am still absolutely going to kill you dead, though. And the Marlin surges again and makes Santiago bleed some more, because the Marlin don't take no shit. He eats some raw tuna he caught, but it's less tuna tataki and more gross-ass fish guts and bones and shit. His hand starts cramping, and he wishes Manol Man Barry Manilow was there to massage the pain away. Which is slightly creepy, but I think that's just because the word massage just carries this weird, vaguely intimate context no matter what. So it's like, oh, I wish this boy was here to massage my hands. Like, it's gonna sound fucking weird. But anyway, he remembers arm wrestling a black guy once. And also that Joe DiMaggio once played like a whole bunch of baseball despite having a bone spur. And he doesn't know what a bone spur is, but he knows it sounds kind of fucking awful. And like, here's the thing. I also don't know what a bone spur is, but those two words definitely sound like they should not fucking go together. Donald Trump does. What? Kept him out of Vietnam. What the fuck is a bone spur? On your foot. What is it? You know what a spur is? Like the things on the cowboy boots. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a little extra bone in your foot. Ah, so it's like a bone sticking out of your... Oh, no, it's, it doesn't it's... stick out. It's internal. Well, then what's the problem here? It's kind of like a goiter. I don't know what that is. No, don't Google it. Our, well, if you Google a picture, our audience is not going to be able to, to see that and appreciate it. 
It's a bony protrusion. See, it's it sticks a, oh, out. Okay, so it's a bony. Ooh, that one on the foot's kind of gross. Yeah. All right. This is sa- I, I I promise I would not lie to you guys. This is safe to Google. Unlike the minion porn, bone spur is safe to Google. It's it's yeah. It's just kind of like a a little sticky outy a bony bit. Right there. Shit. I think I might have a bone spur in my foot actually, based on those pictures. I might have a bone spur. I'm as fucking cool as Joe DiMaggio. And Donald Trump. Fuck that. Either way, the old man resolves to be strong like Joe DiMaggio and keep fighting. And then, and then, the marlin just jumps right the fuck out of the water, presumably while screaming, Have you seen my son Nemo? So the old man finally sees just what a big motherfucker this fish is. It's at least two feet bigger than his actual boat. Like, shit, can you picture that? It's two feet bigger than a big fucking fish. It's a big fish. It's a big fish? Yes, floating around out there in the Danny Ocean. It's Tim Burton's big fish. Um, oh, it's Billy the Marlin. Who's pretty big. So, night falls again, and he hooks a dolphin, and he clubs it to death. And, I mean, like, is it like a, is it like a dolphin dolphin? Are there multiple kinds of dolphins? Yes. Okay, because when he says clubs a dolphin, I picture, like, he's fucking, like, murdering flipper. Well, there's also, like, mahi, which is, like, a kind of dolphin. Okay, because I'm, like, because then he's, like, gonna gut flipper and eat him raw, which is, like, no flipper. You see, they consider mahi a dolphin fish. What the fuck? That doesn't... Google mahi. That doesn't look that anything like that. Yeah, no, I'm telling people. Uh. I'm, I'm telling our audience because they can't see this picture. Google mahi because that doesn't look like a fucking dolphin. That looks like a, a, a fish. That's called dolphin fish. Jimmy Buffett on the guest episode he had on my brother and my brother and me. He, he talks about how the fact that all fish is just fish and that people name fish whatever. So this mahi mahi, this dolphin is not a fucking dolphin. It's 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 a big green dumb fish. So I guess he doesn't like club flipper to death. In case anyone was worried. He uh, opens up. He does gut this dolphin. And inside the dolphin guts. We're gutting dolphins at the Copacabana. No, no, no. That's what was inside the fish. Oh. That's the co- where the Copacabana is. It's inside the dolphin. It's the hottest place north of Havana. Inside it, a dolphin. It's kind of like when Luke slices open the Yeti guy. And, and the, he Copa Cabana, inside. the Copacabana comes out. Yeah, and he sleeps inside of it. Or he fucks it. He, fuck, he might fuck it. It's been a while since I've seen the original trilogy. He might fuck it. Nah, when he does open up the dolphin, he does not find the Copacabana. He finds um, a couple flying fish. So it's kind of like a kinder surprise, but awful. Snorky, no. Snorky, speak. No, it's it's Snorky, Snorky. talk, man. Eons ago. <laughs> Your people exiled ours to the sea. It's awful. Every morning we wake up phlegmy. I remember more of this bit than you do. <laughs> he fucking promised you guys snorky content. He doesn't even remember how the bit goes. It's from The Simpsons. He's pulling it up right now on his computer. He's just feverishly typing away. Look at him go. He's clicking as fast as he can. Little does he know YouTube only has like a 20 second version and then also the Spanish one where it goes snorky, habla, hombre. Your ancestors drove us into the sea where we suffered for millions of years. We were trying to get out. It's cold. It's wet. 
Every morning I wake up flemmy. <laughs> That's not quite the snorky content they were promised, but sure. He spends another night holding the fishing line with his poor fucked up hands while trying to sleep, and then we enter day three of Fish Watch, 1950. <laughs> I don't know the year. Another two hours of hot fish on old man action, and the marlin surfaces again, and Santiago harpoons that motherfucker in the face. Ahab can go eat a dick. And he thinks that John, John, John DiMaggio, Joe DiMaggio. I wrote down John DiMaggio. Hey, it's Joe. <laughs> Joe, Joe DiMaggio would be proud of him for stabbing that fish real good. And then he lashes this fucking behemoth to the side of the boat since it's too big to actually fit inside his actual boat. And he's like, yes, this is a fitting representation of my penis. This will do. He starts to head for home. By the way. Yeah. Joe DiMaggio is not the iron horse of baseball. That was Way to fuck it up. That was Lou Gehrig. Wow, he's a Lou Gehrig was the iron horse. What was Joe DiMaggio? The the guy who got Lou Gehrig's disease. You're full of shit. Joe DiMaggio did not get Lou Gehrig's disease. He also wasn't apparently the iron horse, so you're just full of garbage. He was the Yankee Clipper. He was the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital of South Florida. Except that the Marlin... Is still bleeding from Billy. The, the aforementioned harpooning. Billy, you gotta call Billy my is name. bleeding, and it's attracting sharks. And Santiago's like, seriously, really, like, god damn it! And he harpoons the shark, but not before it takes a big old bite out of Billy the Marlin. Oh, what's the shark's name? And also takes the old man's harpoon with a sharky. He's fucking sharky the shark. No, it's Mark Cuban. So it's like, Mr. Wonder- Mr. Wonderful is eating Billy the Marlin. He's eating Billy the Marlin. Stop him. Stop him, Mr. Wonderful. So Santiago harpoons and Buddy takes the harpoon with him. So now he doesn't have a weapon. Mr. Wonderful, no. On the bright side, the old man thinks that Joe DiMaggio would have been really into how good he stabbed that shark. So he keeps sailing, and he has to eat some of Billy the Marlin himself to not die. And some sharks come, and he attacks those with an improvised harpoon he made by tying a knife to an oar. And, like, seriously, old man Santiago could probably kick Ahab's ass. Like, legit. I know I was giving him shit before about not being able to catch a single fish in three fucking months, but, like, he seems way more resourceful and determined than Pegleg Mick can't kill whales. The problem, though... Is that the marlin is still bleeding. Billy. Billy is still bleeding and stabbing at the sharks makes them bleed, which then in turn attracts more sharks. And the old man actually feels really bad about killing the marlin now because like such a ginormous, majestic creature deserved better than this bullshit. But oh well. It's nighttime again and there are even more sharks and he's clubbing those fuckers like no tomorrow. He's clubbing them like... Yep, like that. And uh, soon enough, unfortunately, all of the marlin is gone. The old man is like, this was such a load of bullshit. Not Billy. I hate the ocean. You hear that? I hate you, Danny Ocean! Late that night, Santiago finally makes it ashore. He doesn't even care about the marlin skeleton or fucking anything anymore. He's just so battered that he beaches his boat and just heads to bed. The next day... He wakes up to... With a bad case of bedhead. <laughs> he wakes up to Barry Manilow, uh, standing over him and crying over how fucked up the old man is, which has got to be a little unsettling to see, like, first thing when you're waking up. 
just like this kid just sobbing over your body. Oh, kidding me. I'd wake up hard every morning. <laughs> Ew, gross. Shut up. Meanwhile, <laughs> the fishermen on the beach are checking out the marlin skeleton, which is like 18 fucking feet long. Holy shit. And so even though he doesn't get to like eat and or sell the marlin, the fishermen in the village at least know that like he legit caught that monster and no one can take that away from him. So at this point though, Santiago doesn't even care. Like he's tired and he's glad that Barry Manilow is there and he goes to sleep and he dreams about... Actually, he dreams about lions, but, I mean, that would be just as good. The end. That's the old man in the sea. Hemingway said of this book, it is the best I can write ever. How do you feel about that? I agree. That's the best he can write ever. A story of an old man fighting a fish. A fish that he he feels like he is, but also that he kind of wants to fuck but also is kind of representative of his penis i think it's also kind of representative of hemingway's life explain that he thought he had the good life but the sharks keep on coming and they pick him and pick at him so there's nothing left but bones yeah but some of that is his own fault i think hemingway would agree okay as long as Hemingway is accountable for his own stupid bullshit. So like I said, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature for it in 1954, and he donated it to a, a Cuban Catholic Church charity. Then it was stolen in 1986, I think. And then Raul Castro was like, you give that back! And they did. The book has been adapted as a movie in 1958, and then a TV movie in 1990 that won a bunch of Emmys, and I think that's the one we watched in class... I know you think I'd be able to remember if the thing I watched was from 1958 or fucking 1990, but this was like 14 years ago, and I can't remember anything about it with the exception of, like, the kid screaming about Joe DiMaggio while the old man's away. Like, they show the kid running up to the ocean, and the fishermen are like, he's probably dead out there somewhere, and he's like, Joe DiMaggio hit a hold run! Mr. Santiago, come back, because Joe DiMaggio, that's all I remember. There's also an animated short that was made in 1999 that is done in the extremely technical and time-consuming paint-on-glass form of animation, which is beautiful, and it's pretty dope. It's on YouTube. You can check it out. It's worth it. It's gorgeous. Um, so that's kind of it in the way of adaptations. RJ. What's up? Do we have anything else we want to say about the old man in the sea? I feel like we kind of spent this episode mostly focusing on Hemingway the man and not old man in the sea the story? I think it's very autobiographical, okay. as I was just explaining. That he's the fish. No, he's the man. Is he, he's the his man. life is the fish. He's the man, his life is the fish. And all the accidents and suicides and diseases and everything else. There was one There was one suicide. <laughs> well... His family. Oh, committed that's suicide. true. And then his fucking a lot of his fucking kids committed suicide too. It's it's actually really terrible. Yeah, that's the thing about genetics, you know. Yeah, as someone with a genetic mental health disorder, yeah, I do know. And it's the last work he uh, full well, it's the last full length novel he published. So it's the story of an old man taking on Danny Ocean, finding Billy the Morrow on inside of Danny Ocean, and then Mister Wonderful and or Mark Cuban. Picking them clean. People like the book. It's a classic. 
People gave the Hemingway a lot of shit at the time. Oh, the Aquarium. That's what's closer. People people gave Hemingway a lot of shit at the time because they were like, what are these short sentences? Where are my long, flowing, comma-riddled, beautiful metaphors of purple prose? And Hemingway was like, no! Six-word sentences! Go fuck yourself! And that was actually a, a pretty big declaration to make at the time. It was, I know it's like, that's kind of weird now, but like, that was a big deal! People were like, what the fuck is this? As people tend to be about any new thing someone does in a novel, but whatever. Megan accuses me of writing like Ernest Hemingway. No, I don't. I accuse you of editing like Ernest Hemingway. Know the difference. Oh, I write like that too, though. He That's write, why I yeah, edit that He way. writes short clip sentences and he edits my beautiful, lengthy, stream of consciousness sentences into these short clip motherfuckers with no... Feeling in them. Feeling has no place in writing. There's only one feeling to feel. And yeah. John Donne nailed it. Horniness? Yep. All right, on that note, <laughs> let's bring it back around to the end. RJ. What's up? Old man in the sea. Hag. Hag. Ocean. Ha- have a good summer. Hags. <laughs> Hags. Hags. I remember Hags. I was more pro sea than pro man, but there you go. Fuck that man. Don't drink out of my bottle. You can't stop me. You can't stop me. Fucking talk about talk about the novel. Talk about the novel. Talk about the novel. Though, as I've made clear, I write like Ernest Hemingway. No, you don't. I do. You don't write. I do. Not fiction. Yeah, I do. When do you write fiction? Always. Show me your fiction. No. Send me your fiction. No. Then you're lying. No. Show me your fiction. No. I show you my fiction. You do? You don't love me. Debatable. Wow, I don't like the ambiguity there. Continue. Well, when I die, I want it to all be published. Continue. Or burned. I might burn it. I want to be like Emily Dickerson. (laughs) Emily Dickerson? Yeah. Continue. I don't want to be published till I'm dead. Continue! Thumbs up. Siskel, your thoughts. (laughs) If, If you haven't figured this out already, I'm not a Hemingway fan. He was a prick. He... Didn't know how to write women. He didn't give a shit about how to write women. And he was terrified that emancipated women would crawl out of the walls and steal his testicles and put them in a jewelry box. I appreciate some of his stylistic choices because purple prose can fucking weigh on you and it's kind of nice to have a person who gets to the point. But... what? I'm RJ. I'll see you next week. Ernest Hemingway can eat a big one. <laughs> yes, such times. Oh, hello there. It's me, a more recent, significantly more sober Megan. I'm nestled within the episode. It's a, it's a long one, huh? But I, just, I didn't want to deny any of you that sweet Dona Lit Class content that you crave deep down in your souls. Okay, sorry. Um, actually, I'm, so I'm just here to to mention the Work-Life Imbalance podcast to Office Pals, Frank and Derek, just being really goddamn funny. Not even just about like office life and culture and things like that, which they are like a thousand percent spot on with, oh my god, as someone who is a certified office drone. It is hashtag relatable, but also they're just really friggin' funny they have excellent chemistry and also they're gonna be mad because this is like the fifth time that i've said this but frank sounds exactly like ron swanson 
Listen for yourself and be the judge. Also, just want to throw in there, I don't know how often you you might listen all the way through the episode to the end. If, if you don't, you should, because we always have like a fun, goofy outtake at the end of every episode. But even if you don't, you should to this one, because we've got like four or five of them, because there were a lot, because we were drunk and just so dumb. All right, uh, thank you for listening. Yeah. Should you eat that cake in the break room? What makes the ultimate office pet? Is the shuffling from the next bathroom stall a demonic rite or something far worse? On the Work Life and Balance podcast, you can find terrible answers to some of your most uncomfortable questions. Whether it's coming to work with late-stage syphilis or staying on trend with pants full of angry raccoons. I'm Frank Eastman. And I'm Derek Lewis. Two guys who ought to know better on Work Life Imbalance. Find us at WLICast.com on iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are found. Subscribe and like and rate and review us on iTunes, Facebook, Facebook group, Twitter at Ono Lit Class Pod, Patreon at Ono, uh, Patreon.com slash Ono Lit Class. Thank you. Best day for making our intro music. You can find more of his stuff at SoundCloud.com slash Best Day. We are on the Bring Trust Network. Fuck that bros. We cutting that bros off. We got dope shit on this network like Life, Death, and Taxonomy and Play Comics and Potter and History X motherfuckers and the Brain Trust Brothers. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Shit. He's going to change the name of it. It's not going to be called the Brain Trust Brothers Podcast anymore. I don't know what it's going to be called. It's a mystery. It's sexy. It's interesting. Thank you to our patrons, which includes Chris Osborne, Not Alone Podcast, Rob Christofferson, Melina Ziyajim, Alex McCarrick, and Ariel T. You know what I mean, Bird? You know what I mean? Our next episode will be on... May 10th. Yes, it will be on May 10th. Until then, thank you for listening to Ono Lit Class. I'm Megan. I'm Eggplant in Fire. You're a fuckface. But I love you. I love you. Do you love me? I love you. He doesn't fucking love me. RJ doesn't love me, you guys. Holy shit. Fuck, this changes our whole paradigm. He doesn't fucking love me. Shit. You know what? Fuck him. I love you. Goodbye. The Iron Horse. Yeah, yeah. So he starts to head for home. Yeah, home. Stop. Circle and third. Stop. Got to go. Got the green. Go for it. Danny Ocean. Ooh. Oh, gross. Oh. Oh, I threw up a little bit of taco in my throat. Oh, it burns. That's really bad. Remember when he was in um, Money Monster? Yeah. That was a very bad movie. That starred Danny Ocean! And Tied Sandra it Bullock. Tied it up. And Sandra Bullock. We are so good at this. No, wasn't it? Uh, Julia Roberts. It was Julia Roberts. Miss it was not Sa- No, that yeah. was Sandra Bullock. <laughs> um, closer. Fuck. Which reminds me, Megan. Yeah. Have you thanked the Phoenicians today? I thanked them for papyrus. <laughs> See, I go jokes on jokes. Yeah, no, this is going to be unlistenable. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you in part by the Brain Trust Brothers Network. For more information about this podcast or others, visit braintrustbros.com.